If I've never met you before, I'm Pastor Lucas. I'd love to have the opportunity to do so after the service. I have the glorious privilege of preaching from the book of James this morning. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, that can be found on page 1013 of the Pew Bible. The words will also be on the screen. We're going to be looking at verses 11 and 12 today. Let's begin by reading this section of Scripture. Please follow along as I read out loud. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? She's volcanic, the most corrupt person to ever run for president. He has been engaging in bigotry and bluster and bullying. She does not have the stamina to be a good president, doesn't have the energy, doesn't have the strength to be president. He's not just unprepared, he's temperamentally unfit to hold an office that requires knowledge, stability, and immense responsibility. He's thin-skinned and quick to anger. He lashes out at the smallest criticism. She's crooked and no longer has credibility. Too much failure in office. People will not allow another four years of incompetence. These are just some of the insults traded between the top two presidential candidates in recent days. It has become so commonplace to hear politicians resort to ridicule and slander, especially during election cycles, that we hardly bat an eye when it happens. It is even tempting to think that perhaps this year is worse than ever for the kind of vitriolic rhetoric that is spewed out by candidates on both sides of the aisle. But a glance at history suggests otherwise. In her book, Slinging Mud, Rude Nicknames, Scurrilous Slogans, and Insulting Slang from Two Centuries of American Politics, Rosemary Osler says, quote, Pundits in recent years have taken to bemoaning the loss of civility in public discourse, apparently under the impression that the political campaigns of earlier eras were conducted with utmost courtesy and decorum. Actually, mudslinging is a venerable American tradition, on par with baseball and apple pie. Politicians have been going negative since the days of the founding fathers." End quote. For example, the 1800 presidential contest between Thomas Jefferson and John Adams managed to be one of the dirtiest on record, a verbal bloodbath worthy of the most negative 
modern campaign. And it set a precedent that subsequent contests would follow. One pamphlet from Adam's party described Jefferson as a mean-spirited, low-life fellow who was raised wholly on hoe cake, bacon, and hominy with an occasional change of fricasseed bullfrog. In return, Adams was accused of election fraud and multiple corruptions. One of Jefferson's men attacked Adams saying, quote, the reign of Mr. Adams has been one continued tempest of malignant passions, end quote. The 1858 debates between Republican Abraham Lincoln and Democrat Stephen Douglas featured more of the same kind of smear campaigning. Douglas accused Lincoln of being a drunk, stating that the future emancipator could ruin more liquor than all the boys in town together. Not to be outdone, Lincoln said that one of Douglas's arguments was as thin as the homeopathic soup that was made by boiling the shadow of a pigeon that had starved to death. <laughs> Whatever that means. In 1898, then Secretary of the Navy, Teddy Roosevelt, snidely commented that President William McKinley had no more backbone than a chocolate eclair. Things got really bad in the 1968 race between Lyndon B. Johnson and Barry Goldwater. Johnson ran what many consider to be one of the most defaming ads to ever appear in an election season, the Daisy commercial, in which he essentially said that electing Barry Goldwater would bring on nuclear destruction, killing our nation's children. Of course, this was a gross exaggeration. But it worked. Johnson defeated Goldwater in a landslide. All of this demonstrates that slanderous politicking is a pastime of American history. But the truth is that the use of insults, ridicule, and slander is not something that is just confined to the world of politics. It is part and parcel of the world of sinful human beings. And it is as old as the fall of man into sin. Sadly, sometimes the sin of slander is even found in the church. You remember two weeks ago in our study of James chapter 4 verses 1 through 10, we learned about the quarrels and fights that were occurring among the believers to whom James wrote. These early Christians had adopted a worldly mindset and ended up maligning and slandering one another. And rather than locate the source of their conflict on some external factor, James locates it in an internal problem, the sinful pleasures that were warring within each of their own hearts. Their real enemy was not outside of them, it was within them. 
And if they were to experience peace once again in their church, these Jewish believers needed God's grace to enable them to humbly resist the enemy and repent of their sin. James told them in verse 10, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. But there was more work still to be done. If they wanted to entirely root up all of the sinful weeds that had sprouted in their congregation, these believers needed to focus more on just the internal heart issues behind their sin, but also repent of the external manifestations of that sin in their behavior. In verse 8, James tells them to cleanse their hearts and their hands. Now in verse 11, he tells them that they also need to clean their mouths. You see, this group of believers had waged a war of words against each other. This was not just about what they were thinking and, and doing to each other. It was also about what they were saying to each other. James had a lot to say to this church about their use of words. In chapter 1, verse 19, he said that everyone must be quick to hear and slow to speak. In chapter 2, verse 12, he wrote that we should speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Then, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, James teaches us extensively how to tame our tongues. And in chapter 5, verse 9, he says, Do not complain against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Now, in the two verses before us today, he again tackles the topic of the tongue. Specifically, James warns us about the severity of the sin of slander. And in order to help us combat this sin in our lives, James offers to us the divine answers to the two questions listed on your outlines. These are the two questions that I want to consider with you today. First, what is slander? Second, why is it so sinful? Let's take up these two questions one at a time, beginning with the first one and its answer found in verse 11. What is slander? Notice again what James says in verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Before we answer the specific question before us, it's important to note the change of tone in this section compared to the previous section. Back in verse 4, James shockingly accuses these Christians of committing spiritual adultery. He says in verse 4, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Their worldly behavior, exhibited in their refusal to get along with each other, was unbecoming of the bride of Christ. They were at odds with each other and fundamentally with the Lord. But now, 
In verse 11, James softens his language, returning to his usual term of endearment and calls them brothers. This is a a gentle, loving plea. Brothers, brothers, do not speak evil against each other. Now we arrive at the specific answer to our question. What is slander? Here James defines slander as speaking evil against another person. Other translations say, do not criticize, malign, disparage, or backbite each other. The NIV renders it, do not slander one another. To slander another person is to defame their character or reputation. Literally, it means to talk down to them. If, in verse 10, we are called to pursue humility in our attitude toward God, in verse 11, we are called to pursue humility in our words toward each other. One commentator says, defamation is forbidden, not as a breach of truth, nor even as a breach of love, but as a breach of humility. If we are really low before God, we have no altitude left from which to talk down to anyone. Throughout the Bible, the word slander is used in a number of ways. For example, in Numbers 21, verse 5, Israel is said to have spoken against the Lord and his servant Moses. In Psalm 101, verse 5, it describes speaking negatively about someone behind their back. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, it is even used to describe the false accusations that hostile unbelievers level against Christians. D. Edmund Hebert gets to the heart of the matter when he says that James is referring to any critical derogatory speech which maliciously intends to turn others against the person being criticized. We call attention to their faults while minimizing their virtues. What we say may be true, but our unloving motive is to run them into the ground. In a word, to slander another person is to badmouth them. Now, To avoid any confusion at this point, let me quickly mention a couple of things that James is not referring to, and you can see this on your outlines. First, in light of what the Bible teaches elsewhere, James is not teaching that it is wrong to confront another believer's sin. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, for example, Jesus actually instructs his followers to challenge sin in the church through the practice of church discipline. He outlines a step-by-step process that regulates how we should deal with church members who unrepentantly engage in patterns of sinful conduct or doctrinal error. In Galatians 6, verse 1, Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But as you do this, Keep watch on yourself, 
lest you too be tempted. Clearly, we are called to confront sin in the church. At times, even removing members from fellowship over unrepentant, sinful behavior. Second, James is also not teaching that it is wrong to challenge another person's false doctrine. Throughout his public ministry, Jesus constantly warned people about the errors of the scribes and Pharisees. But in doing so, he was not slandering them. He said in Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 through 9, You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. The apostles followed this same practice and routinely and publicly in their letters called out false teachers, sometimes even by name. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, the apostle mentions Hymenaeus and Alexander as those who suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith and who were guilty of blasphemy. He warns his friend Timothy about Hymenaeus and Philetus in 2 Timothy 2.17 and says that they had gone astray from the truth and were upsetting the faith of some. Even John, the apostle of love, felt it necessary to warn his readers about a false teacher named Diotrephes because he desired to be in a prominent position and did not accept the teaching of the apostles. And we too are called to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, according to Jude 3. But this does not violate the command of James chapter 4, verse 11. Finally, James is not teaching that there are never appropriate times to evaluate a person's moral character. For instance, it's necessary to do this when it comes to the selection of potential elders or pastors. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, both outline specific character qualities required of church leaders. Church members must use discernment and even make certain judgments about a potential candidate in order to determine if their lifestyle measures up to the divine standard set forth in Scripture. But these necessary forms of communication and engagement are not what James is referring to in chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. He's not talking about a loving and truthful conversation with another believer in order to bring them good, but an unloving an untruthful criticism of another believer in order to bring them harm. Do you see the difference? Scott McKnight says, quote, The sense of the term here is speaking accusingly, falsely, degradingly, dishonorably, and with slanderous intent in order to label a person as dangerous or unworthy. End quote. For this reason, God commands us in verse 11, do not, do not speak evil against each other, brothers. 
We've answered the first question, what is slander? Now let's look at the second question. Why is it so sinful? And here James highlights the severity of the sin and offers to us reasons why we should avoid it. First of all, slander is so sinful because it undercuts God's people. It undercuts God's people. James says in verse 11, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. Did you notice how many times James uses the word brother? James reminds his readers that they share a common bond in the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Jews, they were physically related, but as Christians, they were spiritually united. They were part of the same spiritual family, united by their common faith in Jesus Christ. But when they slandered each other, they betrayed this reality and undercut those who had been purchased by the blood of Christ. It was not like they were speaking against enemies or opponents of the faith. They were speaking against family members. Of course, as Christians, we are called to speak kindly to our enemies. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 28, But I say to you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. If we are called to speak lovingly toward our enemies, how much more should we speak kindly toward our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Slander is so sinful because it undercuts God's people. Second, slander is sinful because it undermines God's prohibition. It undermines God's prohibition. James writes at the end of verse 11, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And using the word law here, James likely is referring to the Old Testament law of Moses, specifically the first five books of the Bible, known as the Torah. Torah is just the Hebrew word for law. He probably has in mind the prohibition of Leviticus 19.16, which says, Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Just like the Jews of the Old Testament were prohibited from slandering their physical brothers and sisters, so Christians in the New Testament are prohibited from slandering their spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ. When we slander another believer, we undermine the very foundation of the Old Testament law. Summarized two verses later in Leviticus 19, verse 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. James actually repeats this summary of the law in chapter 2, verse 8, when he writes, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. 
And then he adds in verse 12, So speak, and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Because we are going to be held accountable to this divine standard, and one day be judged in accordance with it, we should not speak against or judge another believer in Jesus Christ. But when we, when we slander another Christian, we set ourselves over the law rather than submit ourselves under it. We act like we are above the law, that we know better than God does about how we should treat others. James explains what he means here at the end of verse 11. Notice, but if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law. In other words, to judge the law means to disregard it and to refuse to obey it. In chapter 1, verse 22, James says that when we fail to obey the word, we are not doers of the word, but hearers only. Here, in chapter 4, verse 11, he says that when we fail to obey the word, we are not doers of the word, but judges of it. To hear the word only and to judge the word, determining that it is unworthy to be obeyed, is to undermine the law of God. What a serious sin this is. To think that we know better than God and that we're not accountable to Him. Slander is so sinful because it undercuts God's people, undermines God's prohibition. Finally, it is so sinful because it undertakes God's prerogative. It undertakes God's prerogative. Notice verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? In this verse, James alludes to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39. There God says, See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and make alive. I wound and heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. God alone has the prerogative over human life. Since he is the one who created us, he alone has the sovereign right to order our lives and determine how we should live. He also has the right to hold us accountable to his law. This is what James means by the word judge. God alone is the one who determines the ultimate spiritual destiny of human beings. On the one hand, according to Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, he is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. On the other hand, according to Hebrews 7, verse 28, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him through Christ. He alone and no one else is able to save and destroy. And he is pleased to save all of those who acknowledge their sin and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ as the only hope of forgiveness. But he will destroy in hell all of those 
who reject the message of the gospel and refuse to believe in Jesus Christ and what he has done to save sinners by dying on the cross and rising again to new life. Listen, while it is our responsibility to believe the gospel, it is his right to save us by his grace. But when we slander another believer, we act like we are the determiner of their destinies. Imagining that we have the right to make pronouncements about their character and, and presume to know who they really are. That's why he says at the end of verse 12, but who, do you, who, who are you to judge your neighbor? Essentially he's saying, who died and made you God? Who do you think you are? Do you honestly believe that you know that person as well as God does? You think that you can know what they're thinking, what their motives are, their true character such that you can condemn them with your words? We overstep our bounds when we badmouth another believer. Let us recognize our place as sinners desperately in need of God's grace, just as much, if not more so, than the person sitting right next to us. We are now in a better place to see the severity of the sin of slander. What is it? Speaking evil against another believer. Why is it so sinful? Because it undercuts God's people, undermines God's prohibition, and undertakes God's prerogative. I've long been fascinated by the friendship of two figures from church history, George Whitfield and John Wesley. Both of these men were used greatly by God during the days of the Great Awakening, that, that period of revival that swept across the early American colonies in the 1700s. Whitfield and Wesley were itinerant preachers who would go around and preach the gospel from town to town. Under their preaching, along with others such as Jonathan Edwards, thousands of people came to know Jesus Christ. As some of you know, Whitfield and Wesley did not see eye to eye on many theological issues, especially the doctrine of election. Whitfield was a Calvinist. Wesley was an Arminian. They had significant disagreement with each other about these matters and would continue to debate them throughout their lives. In my office, I have a copy of Whitfield's letter to Wesley on election. Now, this letter offers just a glimpse of some of the deep theological debates that these men had with each other. Just like the congregation to whom James wrote experienced various kinds of conflict, so these two men, Whitfield and Wesley, experienced theological conflict and debate. Yet, despite their differences, Remarkably, Whitfield and Wesley remained lifelong close friends and ministry partners. Certainly, 
They did challenge each other's beliefs and philosophies, but they did not speak evil to or about one another. When someone once asked Whitfield if he thought he would see John Wesley in heaven, Whitfield replied, I fear not, for he will be so near the eternal throne, and we at such a distance, we shall hardly get a sight of him. What an amazingly gracious response. In that moment, Whitfield could have given any number of answers. But rather than speak evil of his brother in Christ, Whitfield chose to speak well of him. He did not slander his friend since he considered him to be a fellow brother in Jesus Christ because he had a reverence for God's word and because he knew that only God had the right to judge his heart. After Whitfield died, it was John Wesley who conducted his funeral in England. According to Whitfield's biographer, Wesley preached first in the chapel and then in the tabernacle, paying affectionate tribute to his associates' qualities and accomplishments. He mentioned especially Whitfield's active ministry, his tender-heartedness, charitableness, friendliness, purity, and courage. He concluded with the statement, Have we read or heard of any person who called so many thousands, so many myriads of sinners to repentance? What an example Whitfield and Wesley left behind for us to follow. This is what we are called to in James chapter 4, verses 11 to 12. To avoid slandering each other because it is dishonoring to God, His law, and His people. Rather, we are called to speak well of each other, pursuing love in the way that we communicate with and about each other. In light of this, by way of application, before you say something about someone else or listen to someone talk about another person, ask yourself these four questions. Number one, is it true? Is what I'm saying accurate? If they were here right now, would they agree with what is being said about them? Would you say it if they were standing right here? If you're talking to another person, about another person, you see them off in the distance and they're, they're approaching and you start quieting down, perhaps you shouldn't be having that conversation. When you're in a prayer meeting, what kind of requests do you offer about another person? After all, Christians don't slander, they just share prayer requests. Number two, is it necessary? Does it really need to be repeated? Does it have to be said? Or can you just keep quiet about it? 
Number three, is it kind? Does it show love for the person being talked about? Does it have their best interest in mind? Am I giving them the benefit of the doubt as a believer in Jesus Christ? Number four, is it humble? Am I guilty of the same thing that I'm criticizing? Do I realize that we are on level ground? That I am just as capable of sin and error as they are? Someone has well said, the difference between a gossip and a concerned friend is like the difference between a butcher and a surgeon. Both cut the meat, but for different reasons. What do your words reveal about your love for Christ and his people? Do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters of Hillside Church. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, You are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? May God bless the preaching of his word and apply it to our hearts by his spirit. As we transition now, our time of partaking of the Lord's table, I want you to keep the message we've heard from James chapter 4 fresh in your minds. This meal that we partake of together is a reminder of the fellowship that we have with God through Jesus Christ and the fellowship that we have with each other. In this sense, this is a meal of reconciliation. We, who believe in Jesus Christ, have been reconciled to God through the cross work of Jesus Christ. According to 1 Peter chapter 2, Jesus knew no sin, nor was any deceit, nor slander, nor reviling found in his mouth. He bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we are healed and have been saved from our sins. Jesus, the one who who never sinned with his lips, he never spoke bad of anyone else. He sacrificed himself for us, sinners who have slandered others and been guilty of bad-mouthing other people. And because of what he has done for us, we, by faith, are forgiven by God and are reconciled to him. In this meal, we remember what Jesus Christ has done for us, and we partake of these elements with thanksgiving. But 
we also need to take some time and confess our sins to God. Times that we have spoken against another person. If you have slandered anyone, then would you take this time to confess that sin to God and possibly even confess that sin to the other person? We rally around this table to affirm our unity and love for each other. Remembering that just as we have been reconciled with God through Christ, we also have been reconciled to each other. Let us take this time to examine ourselves and repent of any sinful words that we may have spoken. I'm going to ask the servers to come forward. Before we share these elements, let me say two quick things by way of instruction. Number one, this is a meal for believers. And so if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then I welcome you to partake together with us. But if you are not a believer, you've never trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and for the hope of eternal life, then I want you to know that, that we are so glad that you are here with us. But I would ask that as the trays come to your row, that you would just let them pass you by. But as you do so, would you consider what you're passing? Forgiveness of sins and eternal life are offered to you this day through the shed blood and broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you desire to be saved, the Bible says you have to believe in Jesus Christ. And then you can experience forgiveness and have a right relationship with God and you can partake of this meal together with us. Second, we partake of the elements together, so as they come to your row, please hang on to them, and we'll take them together at the designated time.